This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tecova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovas.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. Here in the Northern Rockies, dark winter months are outlasted in basements, dens, and nooks, where kindred souls gather together to share intel swap fly patterns, and relive the memories from seasons past. This gathering spot, known locally as the February Room, is the inspiration for this podcast. No matter the season, the door is always open to those with a fly fishing story to tell. Brought to you by CD Fishing USA, the North American distributor for composite development fly rods and accessories. 40 years of Kiwi ingenuity and graphite technology now available at cd-fishing.us or your local CD USA dealer. Follow us on Instagram, YouTube, and Facebook. And remember to go fishing. Here's your host, the Carnops, and this is the February Room. Welcome to the February Room. Lauren Carnop here. Enjoyed last week's episode? Incredible what Whoosh Innovations are doing to solve the fish passage problem. If you did enjoy last week's podcast or any episode prior, please remember to rate, review, and subscribe to our podcast. Thank you for your support. We all have that buddy at the campfire who has a lifetime filled with adventures and a life experience that makes you think, holy shit, you've done a lot, and might have you thinking in the back of your mind, how in the world are you still here? Well, lucky for you, you don't have to deal with a spam dinner to hear some incredible stories because I've got you covered. Welcome my next guest, Tim Quinton. Thank you so much for joining me today, Tim. You're welcome, Lauren. It's my pleasure to be here. Well, I'm so excited because like I said, um, Justin has, um, doing a little background, you have really um, a life experience with so much adventure. And as always, we kick the podcast with a fishing story and I can't wait to hear what yours is. Yeah. So, um, like I mentioned before, uh, Justin's a great, good guide and a good guy. So, you know, <laughs> it's a pleasure he's, to fish. He's a double G's. <laughs> yeah, exactly. yeah. He's a two G kind of guy, but, uh, the, uh, and I've got a good story about him later that I'll share with you. But for right now, my first fishy story is 
kind of a follow on and, and some back back story about what another one of your guests a few months back, I think it was about six months ago, uh, Kay uh, talked about. Lightning on the water. Lightning on the water. Yeah. So Ron and I were fishing that day together at uh, Hosmer Lake and the, the call of nature struck me and I had to row myself back <laughs> to the, uh, the campground area. And luckily it wasn't too far away. Uh, so I get back to the campground area on the boat ramp and I walk up to the little outhouse. And anybody who's been to Hosmer knows exactly where I'm talking about. There's a outhouse, just a little bit walk, you know, maybe 7,500 yards up the up the hill from the boat launch. So I'm in there and I did my business. And all of a sudden, I'm I hear this huge crash. And it was it, it sounded literally it sounded like someone dropped a school bus on top of the outhouse. It was it was huge. So I come out and. I walked back down to the boat ramp and I'm, I'm looking around. There's there's four or five people standing around there. And I said, geez, that sounded really close. So they said, yeah, man, it hit right over there. <laughs> right to where Ron and I were fishing. <clears throat> so I, I said, wow, my buddy's over there, you know. I hope my buddy's still there. Well, yeah, that's exactly right. So a few seconds later, I see this rooster tail coming back across the lake right at me, which a rooster tail, if you're not familiar with boat talk, um, rooster tail is a big, like it looks like the tail of a rooster shooting out of the back of the boat because it's going really fast, right? <laughs> so yes. Ron, I've never seen him row so fast in my life. So he's rowing really fast toward, he gets over the boat ramp, he goes, man, I almost got hit by lightning. <laughs> It was, it was one of those things that, thank goodness, we can we can laugh about it now. It was, I'm sure he was scared to death because he started talk, talking about, you know, he saw blue light all around him. He could feel, you know, the oars, um, you know, vibrating and, and he could feel electricity in the air and everything. And he said it was, he expected his boat to blow up any minute. I mean, I'm, I'm kind of saying the same thing he said in the podcast, but <clears throat> that was amazing. I think what's so crazy about that whole, I mean, especially with your point of view is that that small decision to get off the water. I mean, if, if things had gone south, I mean, small decisions can be, can result in big life changes. So now every time is it when it, you see a storm coming, do you have second, um, second guesses of if you're going to go out there? Oh no, 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 <laughs> it hasn't stopped you. You're like, I, I've done this before. I'm still as dumb as ever. Yeah, no. It's, uh, <laughs> and it wasn't a, quote, decision to get off the water. It was, you know, you better get off the water or you're going to be, uh, you know, you're going to have an accident here. So it was one well, of those. It seems to me, though, that Ron's like, I'm never going to go out if it's stormy or cloudy. Like that pro that one, it seemed like that experience really shook him up um, indefinitely. <laughs> yeah, it probably did. And, you know, like you're, you're exactly right. If I hadn't come back in, who knows? Maybe I had been over closer to where the lightning hit and something bad could have happened. So. I know it's just those small, small decisions can, yeah. you know, have bigger effects. Um, well, and like I said, as we kind of started this podcast, you have a very, an incredible background um, in your life. And I was hoping that you can tell us a little bit about how your life and fly fishing kind of comes together, how it intertwines. Sure. Yeah. No, I, uh, so I, I grew up on the East coast in, uh, you know, a bunch of states actually, New York, New Jersey, Maryland, Virginia, 
went to college in Connecticut, started fly fishing when I was about 14. Um, so this is my, just finishing up my 54th year of fly fishing. <laughs> it sounds like a long time, but boy, it flies. It does. Yeah. So I started actually in New Jersey of all places, um, in the Pine Barrens. We lived in Lakers, which is kind of right in the middle of the state. And we lived right next to the Naval Air Station there where the Hindenburg crashed in the thirties, if you're a history buff. And we, um, I started fly fishing there. And uh, luckily there was a guy who took pity on me my first year fly fishing as I was uh, beating the water to a froth and not casting very <laughs> well. Uh, he said, hey, let the cast straighten out a little bit more behind you before you start the forward cast. Yes. And that was epiphany, you know. It's like, oh, wow, yeah, that's a lot better that way. <clears throat> and as a, you know, I, I guided for nine years here in Oregon and uh, that little bit of advice I've given to many, many people who were struggling with their casting. So that, but that was when I was a 14 year old kid. So, I mean, it, that, that stuck with me. But anyway, uh, yeah, I went to college in Connecticut and um, uh, Connecticut has actually some really nice fly fishing water uh, up in the northern part of the state, mostly Northwestern. And I fished some of the really nice rivers up there, the Housatonic, the Farmington, uh, the Salmon, a few other rivers. And then uh, I went to the Coast Guard Academy in, in New London, Connecticut. When I graduated from there, I started going all over the country in the Coast Guard. And I, I was stationed in Kodiak, Alaska three different times on three different ships there. And Kodiak is an amazing place for outdoor hunting, fishing, skiing, you know, cross-country type skiing. And I, I, as a matter of fact, I caught so many salmon up there. I really don't need to catch salmon anymore. You got your fill. <laughs> yeah, I mean, and I got, I, I'll freely admit it, I got spoiled on salmon up there. So I just don't fish for salmon all that much. My travels in the Coast Guard took me to, like I said, Kodiak, Alaska, Governor's Island, New York, where I would drive up and uh, uh, fish the, the Beaver Kill River in upstate New York, which was a, an amazing river. This is back in the late 70s, early 80s. I think it's still a pretty decent fly fishing river. Um, Seattle, I was stationed in Seattle twice and I fished a lot around there. The Oregon coast, uh, I fished out there and that's where we got to know central Oregon. Um, when we were living on the coast, I used to come over here for good fly fishing and, uh, for a little bit of sun. And it was, uh, it was nice. My wife and I first got married when we were stationed there and, uh, yeah, she liked it over here too. So it's one of the reasons we've kind of settled out here. Which is in but Redmond, it, correct? Well, actually, this is our third try of settling in Central Oregon. Third time is a charm. Yeah. So here's here's the timeline. Uh, June of 2000, I retired from the Coast Guard. We moved to Bend because I, at the time I was living in Seattle. I had just left. Uh, I was executive officer on a ship up there and got transferred or retired. We figured, well, we kind of like Central Oregon. Let's give it a try. So we moved to Bend. Uh, we were here for two years. We lived down in the southwestern side, kind of. Uh, just to the west of Fred Meyer on the other side of where the, the uh, parkway is now, which it wasn't there then. And then we moved uh, after two years. So 2000, the next year, 9-11 happens. And mm. the Coast Guard grew bigger, faster, and they didn't have enough people. So they sent out a message that said, any of you old retired farts want to come back on active duty? Uh, wow. Okay. So I went back in and I was stationed at the Pentagon for three years, which was experience. Uh, you know, I was, I was one of 12 Coasties at the Pentagon and there's 25,000 people that work in that building every day. 
so it, we were the smallest minority at the Pentagon. Wow. Yeah, it's, it's a huge building, it really is. Um, <clears throat> you know, like 17 and a half miles of hallways in the building. I mean, that's how big it is. So when uh, I re-retired from the Coast Guard at the end of 05, we said, well, we want to move back to uh, Central Oregon. And we looked around, couldn't find a place that we really liked in Bend. So we found a place that we really liked in Sisters. And we lived in Sisters for three years. So beautiful. Uh, yeah, it is. Gorgeous place. And we, uh, at the kind of almost at the end of that three years, a good friend of mine, an academy classmate of mine, was working for the um, Pacific Northwest National Laboratory in Richland, Washington, Southeast Washington. And he said, he was talking about all the cool stuff he did working there. And I said, you know, I, uh, I wouldn't mind doing that. He goes, well, geez, okay. So <laughs> I sent him a resume, <laughs> we got hired on. I worked there for seven years and then uh, retired, retired out of there at the end of 15. And we moved, moved down here. We live in Eagle Crest, which is kind of a little bit west on the west side of Redmond there. And we had a house built here and we, we like it here. So what skills do you think there were skills that you learned in the Coast Guard that was able to uh, that you were able to use as a fishing guide? Things that you learned from the Coast Guard that were able to apply as a guide on the Deschutes? Oh, definitely. Yeah. Um, it wasn't so much fishing because, you know, I've been fishing for a long time because I before I became a guide. So it was more uh, instructing people and kind of working with people and just learning to listen to them and kind of tailoring what they need to what, what your guiding style is like. Well, I'm sure you also have like better way of directing people and like perfecting skills and flies. Um, I do want to, do you have a crazy Coast Guard story? I imagine having that much time um, spending um, your career in, as a Coast Guard, um, you must have a pretty incredible story to share. Yeah, sure. Um, yeah. I got a bazillion of them, of course, but, it, it always seemed like when my ship was on patrol, we didn't get the big, big search and rescue cases where we, you know, saved a bunch of lives or pulled a ship off the rocks or anything like that. No, no Titanic stories. Yeah. Yeah. The, no, no Titanic story. However, here's an interesting one. I was my first tour of duty in Kodiak. I was, a, you know, a junior officer on the ship and I was one of the boarding officers. I did. In those two years I was on that ship, I did probably 100 boardings of foreign fishing vessels up in the Bering Sea. We got on board this one ship. Um, I distinctly remember it was a Taiwanese vessel, the Haile 301. That was the name of it, Haile 301. And we uh, we got on board, and the weather was a little iffy because the weather's usually you know not great in Bering Sea. And we were about 100 miles west of the Pribilof Islands, so right smack dab in the middle of the Bering. And we got on board, did a boarding, and what we do is we check all their fishing logs and go through their freezer holds to make sure they don't have the wrong kind of fish or that they are reporting their fish correctly. And it was, you know, all federal laws that they had to follow at that time. It's all changed now for that. But uh, anyway, in the four hours it took us to do the boarding, the wind and seas really kicked up. So they could not launch the small boat off our ship to come back and pick us up. So basically... Our captain talked to the captain on the other, on, on the Highly 301 where I was and said, okay, we need you to head towards the Pribilofs. And it was only 100 miles away, which isn't that far. It took us 44 hours to get there. And if you do the math, that's like, you know, a little less than two miles an hour, a little more. Oh, my gosh. Because it was, the weather was that bad? Yeah. We were looking at the, the anemometers on the ship and everything. And 
the wind got out well over 100 knots and seas, we estimated the seas at probably 50 to 60 feet. So it was pretty good sized seas out there. And we finally got there. And the only thing, so, you know, it was rough. It was nasty outside, you know, storming, blowing your car, you see anything. At one point, our ship that behind us, it was a Storus, which is no longer in service. They're actually not making way forwards. They're making way backwards. Oh, no. But uh, the, the fishing vessel I was on was a little bit bigger than they were. We could, it was a little bit more comfortable ride and we did okay. But still, it was, it was interesting. I wasn't really scared, but it was really interesting being out in that huge sea and winds just whipping all over the place. It was, it, you know, for a 24-year-old guy, it was pretty fun, actually. You know, it's crazy that you, I mean, I, I would get seasick. I actually have gotten seasick. I think it was in Boston and my mom was like, we're going to go whale watching. And I went with my cousin and I was like, this is great. This is beautiful. And then 15 minutes later, I was laying on the, <laughs> on the bow of the boat, just like closing my eyes. And I can still remember the outfit I was wearing. I was so miserable. And, um, I feel if I was in that position, I'd probably be in tears crying. I, I have to say, I'm just totally not, I had to see some land. I don't know why it just makes me, or maybe I need to take some medication that makes me a little bit better to be out in the sea. Um, I know when I, when I heard you talk about the Bering Sea, it made me think of um, like deadliest catch, a lot of crab fishermen. Um, had you have to deal with a lot of, um, lot of crabbers who've gotten stuck or like as your position, you said you didn't really save people. So like, what was your main job out, out on the ocean? Well, yeah, our main job was if, if people get in, in, you know, a tough spot, we would go save them. And we, and I don't mean the sound that we've never done anything. We just not the big high, high profile search and rescue. I see. Okay. So you're still out there as Superman, just not, it wasn't as big scale as. Yeah. We, we towed in plenty of boats and we did medevacs off of boats, you know, people that were, had hurt themselves or, uh, uh, or were sick, you know, we'd bring them into a port, things like that. Whale watchers. Yeah. yeah exactly. <laughs> <laughs> and don't feel bad about getting seasick. Jeez, I, I got seasick all the time. My first couple of tours at sea. Uh, it calmed down after that quite a bit, but yeah, you just kind of get seasick and then you plot on and do your job. You know, it's pretty much it. It's just a fact of life. Some people get seasick. What was like one of the most common mistakes that you see people doing out in the ocean that you're like, that is the one mistake you should never do or that you should prepare yourself when you're going to go um, explore the Bering Sea? Well, most of the, the vessels that we came in contact were commercial fishermen. You know whether it was foreigners or or U.S. domestic guys, and most of them are pretty good about preparing. They don't always make the best decisions. I remember there was uh, there were two sister ships. There were crabbers that back in the '90s, I want to say, they uh, they both capsized and sank with total loss of life. Uh, I don't think they I don't think they even found anything off them, and that was a bad decision to go out in that sea state because when, when you think of a crab boat um when they're when they don't have all their crab pots in the water okay you have them all stacked up on deck and it's pretty high well just the weight of the crab pots alone isn't enough to capsize the boat but when you get out in really bad seas where you're taking a lot of spray over the bow and it's below freezing 
So all that spray, as soon as it hits that cold metal, it freezes. Then you start accumulating a lot of topside weight. And that is what causes it capsizes. Because you've got many, many tons of, of weight above your water line where you didn't have it before, and that causes you to capsize. So things like that, you know, or sometimes it was just something that, that nobody had any idea about. You know, um, something would break on the ship and it would start flooding. And whether it wasn't good maintenance or whether it was just the luck of the draw, you know, that would happen too. Every once in a while, there'd be a collision or someone would break down and we would go and tow them in uh, either to Dutch Harbor or up to the Pribilofs if they were up in that neck of the woods. But uh, generally speaking, it was uh, it was pretty boring out there a lot of times. <laughs> <laughs> Which boring could be sometimes really good. It's funny because you're saying all these things like the Bering Sea and the port that you were just talking about. Because I was such a huge, um, in the very beginning, I was a huge Deadliest Catch mm-hmm. yeah. fan. And then I think after season four, I was like, okay, I think I've got it down. I've got, I've got it. I've got it like yeah. <laughs> dialed in what's going to happen. I mean, um, I think at the very end, I'd just like to see who ended up winning <laughs> the amount of uh, crabs that they caught. Yeah. But um, the, what what you described about the ice being on the um, on the crab cages, like there was one episode, I think, where they were all scrambling to try and, you know, knock the ice off because it was so heavy. Yeah. Um, did you, did you know a lot of the boats or, or actually do you recognize a lot of the boats that are on there? Are you like, Oh, I know who's, I know who's the top guy on there. Like, do you feel like you have the inside knowledge of actually of who these people are? You know, I, I uh, whenever I have watched Ed Lee's catch and it's an interesting show. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's somewhat scripted, I'm sure, but yes, you know, whenever you put a microphone and a camera in somebody's face, they're going to act a little bit differently than they do normally, right? Um, right. But I have seen almost every one of those ships and been aboard quite a few of them. Uh, I don't recognize the people. Now, maybe I did meet some of the captains or, you know, because the crews change a lot and sometimes change quickly too. But I've, I've been aboard on most of them and I've seen a lot of them. And you know, it, it's a tribute to those guys that they're still here, you know, <laughs> right? because it is the deadliest catch. I mean, it's the most dangerous job in America anyway, maybe the world. And also the worst health. I mean, those people are the most unhealthiest people. I mean, they, they seem like they're drinking coffee and smoking cigarettes 24 yeah. seven. I mean, every year you're just like, that is probably, I mean, as a Coast Guard, you, is the lifestyle the same? Are you are you smoking cigarettes and drinking coffee 24-7? Well, you know, when I on my first couple of ships, we had guys on there who smoked and, and uh, drank coffee. That was pretty much their uh, their uh, whole day, you know. Um, yeah. They were in the minority, you know, but, uh, and I never smoked and I, Actually, I never drank coffee. Well, I drank a little bit, but hardly any, and which is weird for wow. the house to see. You know, most of the people drink coffee like they don't have time. I still do that. I'm like, three cups a day, Lauren. That's all you get, yeah. three cups a day. Yeah, but uh, yeah, I, I can see that. I saw that in a lot of our own guys. And I say guys because we didn't really have to start having women on ships until my second tour. And then we only had two officers. They worked for me, uh, really long officers. They, they went on and did did fine in their careers, but um, most mostly guys, you know, that was it. Uh, yeah. And, you know, now this, the last ship I was on the Coast Guard was Coast Guard Cutter Midget, which is no longer in service out of Seattle, a 378-foot high endurance cutter. And we had a mixed crew, men and women. Um, 
we did a battle group deployment with a Navy battle group over to the Persian Gulf in 1999. Um, I was the executive officer in there, and that was that was a great trip. I was uh, that was probably my my best six months in the whole Coast Guard. Um, we got to see a lot of foreign ports. Uh, we got to work with the Navy a lot. The crew did so good. I was so proud of them. They, they were just super the whole time. Is that what made it so special was the crew or is it just kind of exploring all these new areas? Well, the, it was a combination. The crew made it yeah. made it to where you weren't dreading each day. You know? Right, and right. The job and they, were, they were just maintaining a great morale and it just worked out perfect. And then we were able to go all these nice places and enjoy them without every once in a while, the life of the XO gets kind of uh, difficult when you have people that are causing trouble. So when your space is really limited, you can't like you're, if you're like, okay, I do not like this person. You're kind of stuck in the same space with them for quite a while. You're like, okay, well, I guess we're all in the same boat. You know, I imagine though that kind of, uh, patience and tolerance and like working with other people must really translated really well as a fishing guide. Cause sometimes, you know, as a guide, um, not that it happens. I mean, we, you're in it because you love taking people fishing. You like them experience having this best experience um, on the water, but sometimes it doesn't go according to plan because maybe the person who's angling doesn't like the weather conditions, doesn't like the fact that they're not catching fish and it's about your attitude, changing their uh, attitude. Yeah, definitely. You have to, and that's what I mentioned before, you have to kind of tailor your, your guiding style to the people you're guiding. Yes. Um, it, it was, came into play. I, I saw it in some guides we had a couple of weeks ago. We floated the uh, Grand Ronde with a, I was with a buddy who doesn't have as much fly fishing experience as I do, but he's a good fly fisherman. And we had a young guide. He was like 27 years old. And he, he was perfect. I mean, he gave me a little bit of, okay, cast it there or try to do this. But my friend he gave more because he needed more. And right. in a way that didn't make you feel dumb. Yeah. <laughs> and you feel like, oh, okay, I'm learning something here. And this is how you catch fish. And we did caught a ton of fish. So it worked out really well. <clears throat> and that's how I kind of tried to do my own guiding uh, career also. You know, I don't, I don't do it anymore. I've done it for about two seasons now. But um, yeah, that's. That's kind of what I, I did. And I, I am actually a professionally trained instructor, too. <laughs> so it, it gave me some skills in, in uh, when I was at the National Laboratory. I was teaching people how to use radiation detection equipment, which is a whole nother life there. Um, wow. It helped me guide a little bit better, too, because I could take some of the skills I learned as, a, as an instructor in a classroom and doing practical exercises with the equipment and just take that out, export that out onto the river and uh, teach people about fly fishing. So it really worked really well. Yeah. I feel like as a fly fishing, there's so much to learn about fly fishing, which in the very beginning, when you start to learn to fly fish, it's a little intimidating. Um, There's so many components. There's fly, there's floating line, non-floating line. I mean, you can probably rack your head around fly fishing you know, when you first go into it, you know, it's not like, oh, I just want to go fishing. You're like, well, or what kind of tippet are you using? What weight are you using? You're like, this is overwhelming. What bug am I using? Like, there's so many 
things going against you. But when you do catch that fish, and especially when you put somebody else on fish based on your recommendations, mm-hmm. um, I think that's the most one of the most rewarding feelings is when it all comes together. It is. Yeah, definitely. And it's also one of the most scary and, and terrifying feelings when you're not doing that, you know? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Nothing right, except we're not catching fish. You know, why is that? So, I mean, it, but it's a, it's a, uh, it is very rewarding and, and it's, it, it's fun. You know, I, I enjoyed it. And a most humbling experience, I'm sure. Yeah. I've had friends tell me I could never be a guide. You know, I don't want to put up with all that stuff that people have and trying to teach them and, you know, not fishing yourself and things. It's like, well, it's, it's a, it's a different kind of a mindset and a different skill set to, uh, to be able to do that well, I think. You know what, what I always get nervous about, like being a guide is that you're also responsible for those people on your boat, like their lives. Actually, just recently, I was reading the Missoulian. I think this happened last week. Um, But someone had the boat capsized on the Clark Fork and everybody um, fell in the water, which you think, which you think because it's, oh, it's fall. The water levels are low. Um, they were in a certain area where there was enough waves that, and so, um, they had to like life flight these people to, um, to receive help. So I hope they're okay. I I should probably do a a backup and make sure they're okay. But I mean, that's, that's why I think it'd be so great for you because you're always so you were responsible as a coast guard for other people's lives and make sure that they were safe. And so, um, I think that is the big thing for me is that when you have people on your boat, you're responsible to make sure that they're safe and they go home and make sure that there's no lightning storm that's going to come and maybe (laughs) send them not back to their house. Right fun adventure can go, go sideways quickly. Yeah, definitely. That that's, that's, you're exactly right there. And you know, the first, uh, guide job I had with uh, Greg Price at uh, Deschutes River Outfitters. He said to me before I started guiding, he said, Here, here's our, our, our uh, motto or creed or whatever you want to call it. He said, safe, fun, fish in that order. And, you know, you want to make sure everything's safe. You want to make sure they're having fun. And then if you happen to catch fish in, in addition to all that, then great, you know, but, but those two are the most important, you know, Definitely. Yeah. Like you said, I mean, a a fun day, you think you're going to just go in there and do an activity, but there's so many other things that can possibly go wrong. Um, Kind of reminds me of um, Jeff Perrin's story about losing your boat. I mean, just because you're going to do activity doesn't mean it's always going to pan out the way that you think it is. Um, (laughs) You're still going out in nature and boats are in water and water, you know, is sometimes can be unpredictable, but that's why you, that's why you hire, hire a guide. Um, What does your fishing life look now that you're retired? So are you just, cause I mean, I have seen some amazing pictures. You've traveled the world. Like what, what is your fly fishing life looking like these days? Well, it's really good. <laughs> yeah. But uh, yeah, no, and big shout out to my wife, Susan, for allowing me to go on these things and, and being a good supporter of my, uh, my hobbies. My life is pretty much golf and fishing. And we live in, in Eagle Crest. We have three golf courses and I play a lot of golf. Um, Plus, I go fishing quite a bit. I probably fish over 100 days a year. Um, and it's, you know, it's my lifelong passion. And I, I do it a lot. So, yeah, but um, so Ron and I are going fishing to in Chile in January. Good for you. Thank you. And then the following December, we're trying to get to oh. New Zealand. 
bucket list. Those are bucket list trips for me, definitely. Uh, last year, and you know, a year ago, January, Ron and I went to uh, Jurassic Lake, which was one of those pictures I sent in that big rainbow, and that was yes. amazing. Uh, you know, if you do a YouTube search of Jurassic Lake and look at those videos. It, that's what it's like. It's not hype. It's all true. So it's amazing. And they don't call it Jurassic for nothing. No, there's huge rainbows in that lake. Yeah, they catch them over 20 pounds every week, and people are in there pretty much. What's your like go-to fly when you were out on Jurassic when you caught that nice fish? That fish. Let me see. Pretty sure I caught that one on Mr. Good Old Wooly Bugger. You know, but that Wooly Bugger is a go-to bug. I feel like yeah, it's for a it, lot of people. Yeah, it it suggests so many different things that fish eat uh, you know when they look at it they see either a dragonfly nymph or a minnow or a leech or who knows what else but all they know is boy that looks like something good that i ate before and they chomp it well and i was going to say because you do have this great amazing career of fly fishing what do you think um you want people like people who are going into fly fishing like what's the biggest thing that you want people to go into as they start to go on their journey of fly fishing? Yeah. So one of the big things definitely is don't get frustrated with everything fly fishing. You know, like you mentioned, it can be so technical and involved and, you know, confusing, you know, when you're looking at all the different things, um, just go into it and have fun. You know, if you like tying your own flies, you know, take a lesson or something and, and tie your own flies. If you don't, then buy some flies that you think are going to work. You know, there's such an amazing wealth of knowledge and information out on the internet these days. You can figure out pretty much anything you want to. If you want to learn how to Euro nymph, you can go on, look on a YouTube video. Um, if you want to learn how to tie a woolly bugger, there's YouTube videos for that too. I mean, everything pretty much you can figure out. So just, you know, Go into it thinking you're going to have fun. You don't know it all quite yet, but your quest will take you further and further. Like I said, I've been doing it over, over 50 years. I don't know everything yet. I learn something every time I go out there. And that's one of the reasons I love it so much is because it's a never-ending journey of discovery and learning for me, big time. What do you think is the first, what's the last thing you just learned about fly fishing that took you 50 years just to learn right now? Well, on the two trips I was on a couple of weeks back, one was on the upper Columbia River up near Canada, where it's a huge river, you know. And we were using, um, at one point, we were using uh, stonefly nymphs, but they the, the guide thought they looked like October caddis, cased caddis nymphs. And we caught fish on them. And the same thing when we floated the Grand Ronde, uh, it was a big, good old stonefly nymph called I think I've heard it called the uh, girdle bug and also Pat's rubber legs. And it's probably one of the easiest flies to tie. Uh, however, it's me productive. It looks really a lot like a stonefly nymph. And I just learned, hey, fish might take it for aged October caddis too. We caught a ton of fish. We caught over 200 fish in one day between the four of us in the two rafts on the uh, Grand Ronde. So, I mean, and most wow. of us were using that nymph. So, I mean, it's just amazing how good it is. So I learned that. Yeah. That's always, see, and that's how I feel about fly fishing. I don't, 
I mean, I still have so much to learn. I think I'm trying to do this nap tea. I'm like, I think I've got it figured out, Justin. And he went out there. He's like, yeah, you've got a lot more to learn. I'm like, okay, well, moving forward. <laughs> but I keep my chin up. I mean, I love it. I think that's what makes fly fishing so much fun is that there's always um, more fish out there that have different techniques and catching them um, mm-hmm. and more skill levels. And um, but yeah, I think I, what I like to think is that anyone can fly fish and you don't need to feel that the only reason why you can't fly fish is you're not an expert. You know, everyone starts from the beginning at some point. I mean, like Ron Kay, he started much later in life. And so um, I think it's always so great that it's like you don't have to be an expert to go out there and have fun. I mean, even if you do put the wrong tippet on there, like just <laughs> go out there and go fishing. Yeah. <laughs> you'll learn, you'll learn. Yeah. Um, well, like I said, I know you said in the very beginning you had another fishing story for us. So um, I think you said it was about Justin. So I'd love to hear it. Yeah. So uh, this is, this isn't, well, it, it has to do with fishing. It's not a fishing story, but uh, my first year of guiding and I was going down the Deschutes River with two clients and I really like to take off the river at dark. You know, I, I like to fish till dark and then you're rowing out in the dark. You can fish well enough to get your way down the river. So anyway, I get into the boat ramp and there was one other boat ahead of me that were just taken out also. And they were getting their stuff ready. So I get in there and I walk up to the parking lot and no truck. So I'm looking around, I can't find it. So I talk to these two guys who are getting their boat ready and I say, geez, you know what? Where's, I can't find my truck. So they say, well, did, did you, are you sure they brought it down here, you know, from the, from the uh, put in up at Warm Springs. So we're taken out at Trout Creek. And <laughs> I said, well, I think so. And at that time, this is, you know, 2001. And I don't think you had very good cell or any cell coverage down at Trout Creek. Now you do, but then it was pretty bad. So I, uh, they said, well, geez, we could give you a ride back to the, back to the uh, boat launch if you want. I said, well, great, that'd be super. So I tell, told my two clients, hang tight here, I'm gonna go get my truck and come back. So um, they gave me a lift to the boat ramp. Well, we get to the boat ramp and there's nothing there. So, <laughs> and so this other guy, the guy who was driving, who was your husband, Justin, he says, "What? did you check the other parking lot? And I said, what other parking lot? <laughs> like I said, that was my first year there. I had never seen the other parking lot and it was dark. So anyway, they drive me back to the boat, to Trout Creek. Uh, sure enough, my truck and trailer were in the other, the upper other parking lot. Cause it was during salmon fly season. It was really busy, you know, a zillion rigs parked down there. So um, Justin saved my bacon and I do dearly appreciate that. And I told him that when we fly fish together he remembered that too. <laughs> but so like, so when you saw Justin, uh, you didn't know he was the one that saved you. Were you in the car? Like, I, wait a second. You helped me out uh, this many years ago. Like, cause you recognized his face or you know, did you just remember his name forever and thinking like one day I'm going to cross paths it, it with was, him again. It was kind of in the back of my mind that this was the guy that, that helped me out. You know, and I can't remember exactly when the light bulb went on, but it was, uh, Definitely is like, are you the guy that did the, you know, he said, I seem to remember that. Yeah. Okay, cool. What a small world. The fly fishing community is pretty small. I feel like there's always somebody who I'm talking to and like maybe one degree to, you know, Mm -hmm. what do they say? The 45 degrees 
with Kevin Bacon or something like that. But with fly fishing, I think you can know somebody that you've talked to like, Oh, I know that person. Like, Oh yeah, I fished with them. I know who you're talking about. Um, but no, what a crazy, what a small world. I love that. So Tim, if anybody wants to kind of follow your journeys, like what's the best way for them to, uh, keep in touch with you? You know, I, uh, I always say that I'm keeping my cyber footprint small. I'm not on Instagram or Facebook or anything like that. I am, however, the president of the largest fly fishing club in Oregon, the Central Oregon Fly Fishers here in Bend. Oh, wonderful. You can, you can reach me through them. Um, I've been the president for almost two years now and uh, might be next year. might not be. Who knows? We'll see if anybody steps up. But um, yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a great organization. We do all kinds of cool things for the, the, uh, uh, the members. We do, of course, it's been tough this last year and a half, almost every right. the president because of COVID. But uh, we're hopefully this next year we'll be getting back into in-person meetings and, and being able to do more things together. Um, we also do a lot of cool things for the local community. We, we teach kids about fishing in general, fly fishing specifically, um, and we help with cleanups on the Crooked River. We do a lot of cool things. So, I mean, it's if you live in Central Oregon and you uh, have any interest in fly fishing, check us out, coflyfishers.org, I think is our, our uh, website. And uh, just a great bunch of people in the club. It's it's, it's fun. Yeah, we, we do a lot of things. I think that's great. Well, maybe when I make my way out to back to Bend, I'll have to come swing by um, this organization. Maybe you guys have some kind of event going on, and um, we can we can go fishing too and hit the Deschutes. Oh, you bet. Yeah, that be that would be great. Thanks for listening. Next week we will be at Elk Camp, trying to fill our freezers with tasty wild protein. So that means no new episode next Tuesday. But speaking of tasty protein. Why don't you circle back around and listen to our conversation with Meat Eater Fishing Editor Sam Lundgren in episode 56. Come on, Justin, grab your pack. Yep, grab yours. It's the big one. Go to thefebruaryroom.com where you can access a complete library of our podcast and read more about our guests, their fishing stories, and favorite fly patterns. We're always looking for exceptional fly fishing yarns, and if you have one to spin, shoot us an email at info at thefebruaryroom.com. The February Room is always free, but if you feel like throwing a nickel in the pond, we appreciate any additional listener support. For companies and individuals interested in sponsorship opportunities, please contact us for our media kit. Thanks for stopping by the February Room, and we'll see you down here next week.